0: My name is Adam Emery. I'm the host and creator of the Look It Up podcast. Today's episode is all about evolution. The first episode of Look It Up was a dive into religions and creation stories. This episode is about what comes after creation. Today, I'm gonna talk about DNA, genes, genetic drift, gene mutations, and adaptation. As with all Look It Up episodes, I'm gonna get you the info I found online and in books. The answers to questions I've heard or I've seen. Today's episode focuses on science, but I'll also debunk some of the most common myths and misunderstandings around the theory of evolution. When I was in college, I took a course on evolution. Like most college courses, we had an evolution course textbook, but our main focus was on Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. If you're not familiar with the book or with the book's author, I'll talk about both today. Evolution is widely accepted in society and science, but for some reason many people still fight against it. People argue against it because of misunderstandings and a lot of people reject it because of misinformation. I hope after listening to this episode you'll appreciate the theory of evolution and the science behind it. I also hope that if you come across the naysayers of evolution in the future you might be able to persuade them with some of this information. First things first. I want to start with what it means to be a theory i've heard people start and end their argument against evolution by saying that you can't believe in something that's just a theory in quotes in science a theory is something that can be repeatedly tested and verified using the scientific method it's not a guess which is what most people confuse with a theory a hypothesis is a guess something that hasn't been proven true or false A scientific theory is something that has been tested, it has been accepted by most scientists, and until proven wrong, is considered to be the explanation for how something works. The scientific method is making a guess based on observations, then experimenting, observing, and testing, and confirming as much as possible if that guess is true. heard of evolution, you've probably also heard that it's the theory that man came from monkeys. Now, there might be some truth in that, but not the way most people think. If you look at an orangutan, or a chimpanzee, or a gorilla, they do look a lot like us, They have similar eyes, arms, hands, ears, and actually genes. But humans have been evolving for thousands, potentially millions of years. So have those monkeys and apes also been evolving? Yes, they have. We evolved at the same time as monkeys, apes, and everything else on the planet today. In another thousand or million years, monkeys will continue to evolve just like us. But they will not suddenly turn into us. They may get more similar... They may get much different. We likely have a common ancestor way up the genetic tree, but we don't come from the monkeys you see swinging in the trees. Now, I mentioned genetic tree. I wanna give a little background on what genes are and why they're important. You may have heard of DNA. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA is pretty cool stuff. It's the building block for all life. You've probably heard of it or seen diagrams of it before. They teach about it in school, and a lot of science fiction movies show that twisted ladder everyone is familiar with. The scientific name for that ladder is a double-stranded helix. DNA is made up of nucleotides, which is basically just a fancy way of saying a group of sugar and phosphate molecules with a nitrogen base. DNA nucleotides have a nitrogen base of C, which is cytosine, G, guanine, A, adenine, or T, thymine. You're not going to have to remember any of this, but the four nitrogen bases C, G, A, and T are in sequences that make up patterns in the DNA. Each nucleotide has a five-carbon sugar molecule and a phosphate molecule along with those nitrogen bases. DNA sequences, or groups of those nucleotides, make up genes. All of our DNA genes are contained within chromosomes. Chromosomes come in pairs. Humans have 46 of them. 23 come from our father, and 23 from our mother. Some species, like plants that have shoots that turn into whole new plants, come from clones, which are genetically identical to the original. They have the exact chromosomes as their parent, but everything that has a male and female reproductive source gets one of each from each side. Chromosomes are made up of long strands of DNA, which include tons of smaller sections. Genes are the sections of DNA which hold specific genetic information. They are the middle level between DNA and chromosomes. Each chromosome in the pair has a different set of genes that our body uses. Each of the 23 pairs are used for different things. Now, you are a combination of all of those genes. You have genes from your mother about how tall you are, and genes from your father about the same thing, meaning you are a combination of both. And you are unique from both of them. Genes are what tells the cells how to grow and what to do. Each cell in the body contains this genetic map of the living organism. But each cell's purpose is defined by specific genes in that map. Genes tell your body everything, from whether a cell should be a muscle, bone, blood, what color your hair is, to how tall you are. Everything about you is in your genes, and there are roughly 20 to 25,000 genes located throughout your human chromosomes. Within those chromosomes, your body has dominant genes and recessive genes, but there can be conflicting dominant and recessive genes, which result in a combination of both. Genotype is the word used to describe the combination of the gene pair. Phenotype is the physical result. I won't get any deeper than that, but You can look it up if you're curious. I've got plenty of resources on the lookituppodcast.com webpage. So, how do genes work? An example of a dominant gene is the gene for brown eyes. When one parent has brown eyes, typically that dominant gene will beat out any other gene, and children from that parent will also have brown eyes. An example of a mixed result gene is height. If your dad is very tall and your mom is very short, you may end up somewhere between them. You might end up taller or shorter. It's impossible to tell. Both the short gene and the tall gene fight it out, and ultimately it's a toss up whether you'll be tall or whether you'll be short. Both of my parents are near six feet. Recessive genes can win if both parents have one. Looking at eyes again, the gene for eye color is in two of your chromosomes, one from your mother and one from your father. If your mother's parents have brown eyes and blue eyes, then she has both genes, one in each chromosome, in her, and you have a chance of getting either one. If your father has blue eyes, he must have two recessive genes, so you will get the recessive gene from his chromosome either way. In this example, you have a chance of getting your mom's brown eye gene and a chance of getting her blue eye gene, but only one chance when it comes to your father. You're going to get the blue eye gene. If you do get that brown eye gene because it's dominant, you will have brown eyes. The only way for you to have blue eyes in this scenario is for you to get the recessive gene from your mother and the recessive gene which you have to get from your father. If that happens, you'll then have blue eyes. So, back to evolution. Sticking with the eyes, dominant genes usually win out over time. Your family can have blue eyes for 30 generations, but then if someone marries in with only brown eye genes, their kids will have brown eyes. For this reason, recessive genes disappear over time in a small subset. In simplest terms, this means that the evolution of humans is probably to have brown eyes. This is because, with brown winning, every time someone gets both dominant and recessive genes, eventually blue eyes will lose out completely. Of course, brown and blue aren't the only eye colors. There are hazel eyes, amber, gray, green, there are even red pigmentation in your irises for your eye color. The simplest way to think about natural selection with evolution or Darwin's evolution is to attribute some kind of advantage to one color. So let's pretend that blue eye gene also gave night vision and all people with blue eyes could see in the dark. In this scenario, let's also pretend that all of a sudden the world went completely dark. Even though you wouldn't be able to see eye color, everyone with blue eyes would go on like nothing happened. They could move around and function just fine. Anyone with any other eye color would likely suffer a terrible fate. They'd fall off cliffs, they'd starve to death, they'd get hit by cars. They'd be completely reliant on the kindness of people with blue eyes. In this thought experiment, the human race would naturally eliminate all of the other genes. It's a bit silly, but it demonstrates how a gene could be used to evolve the species in a different environment. Even though it is a recessive gene now, Over time, all humans would adapt to have blue eyes. As someone with blue eyes, I'm kind of wishing now I could see in the dark. Getting back to the monkeys in the evolutionary tree, from the fossil records we have found, we know that there have been different versions of man from hundreds of thousands of years ago to today. Far enough back, the fossils don't resemble us because over time, from then to now, the genes have changed so much. Some of the fossils we have probably looked a lot more like today's monkeys, but they are still very different from our monkey cousins today. At some point, our ancestors took a turn, and in an evolutionary environment where standing upright, having less hair, less dense muscle fibers, and being taller benefited them, our ancestors started turning into us. Charles Robert Darwin was an English naturalist born in 1809. He's considered to be the founder of the scientific theory of evolution by natural selection. He was the first to publish a book on the theory, but he was not the only person to really think of the theory. During the same time as Darwin, there was an English socialist named Alfred Russell Wallace who had developed a the theory of evolution simultaneously. Their theory was received with a lot of skepticism. The church had a very strong hold on England, and the thought that man came from monkeys and that animals weren't created to be perfect by God was outrageous. Over time, science has won out. History has been kind to Darwin. Charles Darwin is now associated with and will likely forever be linked to three things first, the Galapagos Islands, second, his works, which include his book On the Origin of Species, and finally, third, his trip around the world. In the HMS Beagle. I'm going to give a little history about Darwin. When Darwin was 16, his father sent him to study medicine at Edinburgh University. His time at university is credited with giving him an understanding of scientific theory and thought. When Darwin's father realized medicine wasn't Darwin's passion, he sent him to Christ College in Cambridge. That's where Darwin learned botany, and this is also where the idea of a trip around the world was suggested to him. So after school, Darwin boarded the HMS Beagle as a self-financed gentleman. The captain of the HMS Beagle feared the loneliness of command, especially on a five-year-long journey halfway around the world, so Darwin signed on to keep him company. The trip was five years long, but during that time, Darwin spent only about 18 months aboard the ship. The rest of the time, he was exploring distant lands. His exploration included rainforests, the Andes Mountains. He was able to watch volcanic eruptions in process. He saw the aftermath of earthquakes and tidal waves. He explored fossil-encrusted cliffs, ocean shores, and of course, the Galapagos Islands. By the time the beagle made it to the Galapagos Islands, Darwin and the rest of the crew were already pretty homesick. I was surprised to learn that even though Darwin noticed birds on the islands that were almost identical except for their beaks, he didn't have that famous... Eureka moment until a couple years after he finished his famous journey. Making it back to England in 1836, Darwin had enough notes and observations for a lifetime of study. He spent his first few years back in London. There he worked and wrote about all the species and observations from the voyage. He had a lot of questions about humans, extinct animals, and variations of species he observed, especially the birds. Succession, or the idea that species that are better adapted can take over an ecosystem, was already accepted as proven for why extinction would occur. But that didn't explain the variations Darwin found of the same animals separated by miles of oceans with different characteristics. As he went through his studies and observations, Darwin was forced to work in secret, because it was a time where the church had very strong control over society, so any contradictions to theological doctrine were seen as heresy. Darwin spent years working in secrecy on his theory. It took him two decades after the trip to publish his book, a book that has influenced how we think of genes, genetics, and all of humanity. Darwin spent the years in between his return and publishing his book, visiting zoos, observing species, and talking to dog and bird breeders, who would breed traits they were looking for into each generation of offspring. In 1838, Darwin finally had that eureka moment. It had to do with the idea of population explosions and the lack of resources. Eventually, this would lead to competition that would weed out the weak from the strong. The idea of natural selection was born. After living a secret life and working through his theories for two decades, Darwin finally published On the Origin of Species in 1859. The book itself is a documentation of all the observations that Darwin made during his journeys and the subsequent years. The biggest focus is on the iconic birds that Darwin studied on the Galapagos Island. He theorized that the different plant life forced the beaks to evolve to match their environment. Darwin focused heavily on the adapted traits of species, which gives scientific evidence to the theory of adaptation. Darwin's health was on the decline when he published his book. He had fought off many bouts of illnesses over the last 30 years of his life. He continued to research and study and publish many parts of his work. He also continued to focus on plants, animals, and humans. Eventually, though, he died of heart complications believed to be caused by an unidentified case of Chagas disease, which he probably contracted in Argentina during his trip. By the time of his death, he had managed to convince most of the scientific community that his theory was correct. After his death, he was buried at Westminster Abbey near Sir Isaac Newton. His funeral was attended by thousands. His family was there, a lot of scientists, philosophers, friends, and dignitaries all attended his funeral. Sometimes the hardest part of finding information is to know where to look. When I'm researching things for the podcast, I often start with a simple internet search. It doesn't matter if it's Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, or Yahoo. They're all great launch pads for information. I also enjoy reading through old articles and reading through Wikipedia and college sites. If something looks suspicious, I'll look somewhere else to see if multiple places say the same thing. There are tons of people committed to putting that information out there and being a resource for people like me. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and if there's anything you want to share, please visit lookituppodcast.com and let me know. This last part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about some misconceptions people have when talking about evolution. There's no master list, so I'm going to hit the ones I've heard and read about. If you have any others that you've heard and I don't talk about them, feel free to comment on the podcast webpage. Theory of evolution has proven to be scientifically reproducible from repeated observations, not just guessing at what happened. I already talked about the first misconception, the monkey-to-man myth. This was the one that even Darwin knew would be the toughest for people to accept. Because of the fossil records that show ape-like humans, it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. But having a common ancestor is different from being a descendant of gorillas or chimpanzees. Genetically we are very similar, but even if apes evolve for another million years, they'd likely develop into something very different from us. The next misconception I've seen a lot of is that evolution should explain the origin of life. The idea that evolution replaces divine intervention is not part of the theory of evolution. We have hypothesized about how all current forms of life could have come from a single organism, but that doesn't explain where the organism came from. On top of that, we don't have fossil evidence from A to Z that links all life back to that one cell. So it's certainly possible that there is a god that created the first versions of each animal, and nature did the rest. The next one is that natural selection is intentional or has a purpose. There is evidence that environment can help craft evolutionary traits, but it isn't a guarantee. If a flock of birds gets blown onto an island where the only food source is nuts that have incredibly hard outer shells, It doesn't mean that the birds will evolve diamond strength beaks there is such a thing as artificial selection this is how we've ended up with so many dog breeds bred to do very specific things it's also how we ended up with domesticated cows and so many versions of plants that we have today if the environment drastically changes it doesn't mean that all versions of life will adapt sometimes genetic drift happens in directions that take an organism in a much different direction that isn't well suited for its environment, and that is when extinction happens, or a species will get by, but not flourish. The seeing in the dark thing I mentioned before would be really cool, but clearly it's not in the cards for humans anytime soon, even if the world did go dark. Yet there are animals and other species, like bats, that have evolved sonar rather than heightened sight. If evolution was purposeful or could lead to better lives and longevity, there wouldn't be things like cancer or diseases and animals would always be a perfect fit for their environment. Another myth that evolution is slow and takes millions of years for even the most basic of changes is clearly not true. Our perception of everything around us is very limited because we haven't been observing and watching animals and plants around us with an eye towards evolution for longer than a couple hundred years. But even in that time, we have seen species change and adapt to major changes. In the next few centuries, we might even see some of our own vestigial appendages disappear. Things like goosebumps, tailbones, and wisdom teeth. They serve no purpose for us today, and they might just disappear. My favorite myth is the common expression, only the strongest survive. This is the one I've heard most linked to evolution. The thinking that evolution benefits the healthiest, the strongest, and the best of a species. A look around the room next time you're in a group with a bunch of people can prove this one's false. Sometimes it's the smartest, or the trickiest, or the prettiest, or the most fertile that survives. But none of them need to be the strongest. And they're probably not even the trickiest, prettiest, smartest, or most fertile. My favorite example of this is with the king of beasts. Lions are extremely, let's just say, energetic when they mate. They can go for hours until both the lion and the lioness are exhausted, barely able to move. But there are sneaky, crafty, weaker lion males that will sneak in when the lioness is exhausted, and mate quickly, then run away. In this way, weaker, less fit lions continue their genes and survive, despite standing no chance against the pride male in a fight. When it comes to humans, how often have we heard that personality or sense of humor will often win over strength? Clearly, it's not always the strongest that survive. Finally, the last myth I'm going to talk about today is the evolution endgame, that there's a perfect evolution for each species, for each environment. All species are evolving, regardless of how well-fitted or suited they are to their environment. Mutations are a constant, sometimes minor, sometimes major, but they're always there nonetheless. In a future podcast, I'll be talking about GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, both naturally and artificially modified. Science has come a long way since Darwin first traveled the world and theorized about the origins of species. Now we have the tools to modify genes and to alter DNA. We can splice it and play with it, which is both amazingly promising and at the same time terrifying. We've analyzed the human genome and mapped all the genes, but we still don't know what they all do. There's always more to discover, and there will always be new mutations and possibilities. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you haven't read Darwin's book that I talked about today, it is a fascinating look into a man that has changed how the world looks at species. For more information about any of the topics I discussed, please visit lookituppodcast.com. There you can find more podcast episodes as well as links to all my resources for this episode. And feel free to share your feedback on the website as well. If I said something that contradicts what you know, let me know. In future episodes, I'll take some time at the end of each episode to talk about some of the comments and corrections from what I've already covered. Thanks again for listening, and next time you have a question about something big or small, take a few minutes and look it up.